Good morning, beloved. I want to uh, invite you to open your Bibles. Turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. We are in 1 Peter, chapter 4. This morning we'll be reading verses 7 through 11. I want to begin today by first reading our text once through with you, and after we can see how it applies. So 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Here now is the word of the living and true God. It says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The title of our sermon today is called Living in Light of the End. Living in Light of the End. And over the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is um, drill down in these five verses, as I believe what we have here in verses 7 through 11, is three very important aspects of how we are to be living in the last days. Um, and if you're wondering if we're living in the last days, the answer from scripture that you will see today is a resounding yes. Yes, we are absolutely living in the last day. And Peter speaks to that here in verse 7, and it's where I want to anchor down with our time today. So let's turn our notice to verse 7, and really it's 7a. We're just going to be dealing with the first half of this verse. As I said, I think the church really needs to um, spend a little bit of time seeing exactly how prevalent Scripture speaks to the coming of the Lord and how that should be informing and affecting um, us as we are alive and living in these last days. So notice again, um, verse 7, Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, writes, the end of all things is at hand. Now, we've, of course, talked about the rule of the Roman Empire and the effect this would have had on, on these Christians uh, Peter is writing to. You'll recall Peter is writing to a group of Christians in the first century who were scattered throughout the, the provinces of Asia Minor, modern-day modern Turkey, who have been hard-pressed on all sides. They've experienced and gone through severe persecution and thus far, Peter has spent a lot of time in this letter focusing on how to live godly lives in the midst of an ungodly culture or as you go through unjust suffering. And the tension that brought to these believers living through this very real situation. He's shown us, for example, the tension between a Christian citizen living within a pagan nation or government, the tension between a Christian servant working for an unbelieving master 
And in some of the homes, there would have been the tension you had with Christian wives being married to unbelieving husbands. So in every area of the social fear, whether through the state, the workplace, or in your home, if you were a Christian, there was this constant tension going on. But everything really upticked when we get to July 19th, 64 AD, which was right around the time, the best we can tell, that this was written, or it was written right before or immediately after. Um, you know the story. The Christians were scapegoated. They're blamed for the great fire that destroyed um, much of Rome. And from that point on, a wave of persecution broke out, unlike anything that the people have seen and experienced before. Whole families are devoured. Um, families uh, split up, locked in cages, and were served up in animal skins to wild beasts to devour and eat for entertainment. Catechus, the Roman historian, reported that Nero wrote Christians in pitch, set them on fire as human torches in order to light his garden parties. So when these Christians read the end of all things is at hand, it wasn't hard for them to believe it. It certainly felt like it was the end of all things. But to answer the question, are we living in the last days? The word of God says emphatically, yes, the end of all things is at hand. And that was personally true for Peter as well. If you fast forward just a, a little bit, you can turn uh, in your Bible just one page to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, notice what it says uh, down in verse uh, 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Now, you'll remember from our time spent in the Gospel of John, there's that incredible scene in that final chapter of the Gospel where the disciples have um, returned home after witnessing the risen Lord. And what do they do? They return home, and Peter says to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. Right? And so Peter goes home and goes back to what Peter knows best. But the problem is Jesus had called them to be fishers of men, not a fisherman. Okay? Fishers of men. And you remember, Peter's all defeated because, of course, he had denied his Lord three times as the Lord predicted that he would. And so Jesus miraculously appears on the beach in the last chapter of John. And he asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says three times, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus said this, John 21, 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And so in Peter's mind, he's thinking this is going down just as Jesus said it would. You 
have widespread persecution breaking out throughout Asia Minor, um, Nero's burning Christians alive as human candles. Surely it can't get any worse than this. And so Peter, when he's writing back in chapter 4 in verse 7, and he says the end of all things is at hand, no one reading this letter would go, you know, I don't really know about that. Everybody was thinking, absolutely, it can't get any worse than this. We're living in the last days. The problem is, we read it in our text, that phrase near, the end is at hand, and we have the opportunity and the perspective, if you will, of living 2,000 years downstream from all this and all of our comforts we enjoy today. And the danger for us is it doesn't feel like the end of things is very near at all. It probably felt super close to the reader in 64, 65, 66, 67, 68 AD. Oh, you bet it did. But here we are, January 1st, 2023, over 2,000 years later. And so near, how near are we? And how can we still say today that we're living in the last days? Well, to do that, I want you to turn a couple pages to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to introduce you to end times math. I didn't do very well at math in school, but I do pretty good at this class. Uh, we can start in verse 1, and we can read down to verse 10. As Peter addresses a number of very important issues that I want to talk to you about today, all in these 10, 11 verses here. So, verse 1, this is now, uh, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes your notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. Here it comes. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. What is our Lord patient through? Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So, as we look back on yet another year that has just passed, um, we are reminded that God's end time clock ticks a whole lot differently than ours. End times math says that 2022 
and its pestilences and the fires and the earthquakes and the plagues lasted for about 86 seconds. So we get perspective now that, yes, we are definitely living in the last days. It's been two days since Jesus was raised from the dead. Right? So right now we're in day three. Don't know how many days we're going to be, but we're in the third day right now. And like I reminded mom this week, a lot of things happen on the third day. So maybe it's all going to happen on the third day, meaning that at some time in the thousand-year span we're in, Jesus is coming and this world is going to end as we know it. It's not going to be destroyed by a flood as it was in the days of Noah because there's a promise that won't happen again, but it's going to be destroyed by fire according to the word of God and everything in it will be burned up. All of our pride, all of our accomplishments, all the things we've built, all of our great cities and its towers and bridges, skyscrapers, it will all be gone in a heartbeat like a fire roaring right through those northern California hills up there. And you see the next day on the news is nothing but an empty street where there was once a town, a, a chimney where there was once a multi-million dollar house, a metal frame sitting outside where a school used to be. Because all of a sudden, like a thief in the night, the things that we built, the things that we depended on, the things that we thought were going to bring us happiness, they're all gone in an instant, and imagine the entire earth being gone like that, and the only chimney standing here to say, we were here, but it's all gone. It's all been laid to waste. So, if we are in fact living in the last days, and we don't know when the Lord will appear, how do we make sure that we don't get lulled into thinking like these scoffers did in verse 4, when they said, where is the coming that he promised. How do we live with a view of anticipating Christ's return and standing ready as if today is the day? Well, Peter lays this out for us back in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 7 through 11. Today we're just going to cover point number one and we're going to call it the incentive. This will be the incentive, verse 7, of living in light of the end of all things. Let's look at that first half and actually dig into that verse a little bit of verse 7 and notice how it begins. The end of all things is at hand. And let's just stop there again. See that word end, the end of all things. It's the word telos in the Greek. And when it's translated end as it is here, it can convey the wrong meaning as we think about what it means. For example, it is never used in the New Testament to mean a chronological end to something. As if it simply means something has just stopped, that something has come to an end. Rather, it always has the idea of a consummation. Or to put it another way, as the idea of a goal being achieved. Uh, or a result being attained or a fulfillment realized. It's not just the end of something, it's the culmination, it's the conclusion, it's the consummation of all things. So what is Peter saying then? The end, the telos, the culmination of all things is at hand. So, beloved, this has to refer to the return of Christ. 
All right? If he had said the end of all your persecution or, or trouble is at hand, we could have assumed that maybe that uh, it was the end of Nero's reign or, or that God was going to deliver them from these trials. But he didn't say that. He says the end of all things is at hand. And the culmination of all things points directly to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It must refer to that. It can't refer to anything less than that, for that alone is when all things will be culminated. And this isn't the first time Peter's talked about um, the, the, the consummation of Christ's return. Back in chapter 1 and verse 4, he's talking about our inheritance, reserved in heaven, verse 5, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Um, there again, he's talking about the end times. And then in verse 7, he says, talking about this faith being more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when? At the apocalypsis, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is just another way of saying the revealing of Jesus Christ, i.e. when Christ returns, i.e. his second coming. And we see this again in chapter 1, down in verse 13, a wonderful verse, verse as this would have brought so much comfort to these hurting Christians. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when we went through these verses, we talked about how this was um, an active imperative. Peter's giving a military-style command here. He's saying, I command you to live expectantly, fully, completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter was saying, hope for it as if it's a present reality with an anticipation that your Lord can be coming at any moment. And so you can see how this would have lifted the hearts of these Believers, And that's what he's referring to here in chapter 4 and verse 7 when he says the end of all things is at hand. Now, notice that little phrase, is at hand. It's only one word in the, in the Greek. Eng um, idzatso, it means to come near, the idea of something um, approaching. Um, New American Standard Bible, NIV, translate the end of uh, all things is near. That is to say that the return is imminent. It's near. It can happen at any moment. So Peter is reminding them then that they are to live with anticipation of the nearness of the return of Jesus Christ. And we could say it this way, that they are to live with an expectancy. An expectancy. They're expecting the Lord to return. Now, someone will say, but how could they be waiting then and we're um, still waiting out? Um, how are we to know when Jesus is going to return and establish his kingdom? Well, in Acts um, chapter 1, right before his ascension into heaven, the disciples asked Jesus a similar question. They're worried about when this kingdom of his is going to be established. So they asked him there in um, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Bottom line, God's, God hasn't told us when the Lord will come. In fact, 
to show you just how secretive this whole matter is, I remind you of Matthew 24, 36, where Jesus said, but concerning that day, the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So Jesus, in his own self-imposed humility in his incarnate state, didn't even know the day or the hour. He was able to tell the disciples, I don't know, without lying. As God, of course he knew. <laughs> Jesus is God. In his humiliation that he self-imposed himself, it says that the Son didn't even know. It's only the Father. And that's why Peter is saying to his readers, you must live in a constant expectancy as if Jesus is going to return at any moment. We don't know. The end of all things is at hand. That's the warning. Right? Some of us are really looking forward to it. Others of us are walking around so caught up in our, our life. Now, to demonstrate the early church's belief in this, I want to show you just how prevalent this was taught throughout the whole New Testament canon as it fills the pages of Scripture that, that deal with this sort of um, expectancy. So let me just show you some of them. If you want to follow along, we're going to go in order a book. So turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse um, 12. It says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. And again, that's that concept of nearness or, or imminency. And the end of verse 11 tells us what that has in mind. He says, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Paul's saying, you better wake up. It is already the hour and you're closer to your final salvation than when you first believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly, verse 13 says, not carousing and drunkenness, not sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and make no provision for the flesh. Why? Because he can return at any moment. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is uh, giving instruction to the church concerning those who are unmarried and, win and widowed. However, listen to what he says in verse 29. But this, I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. Notice, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. In other words, we're in a dying world. We're, we're moving fast toward the coming of Christ, Paul is saying. Verse 29, the time has been shortened. 
You better hold everything in this life very loosely. Did you get that? Very loosely. Don't get too caught up in your emotions, in, in its possessions, in your relationships, in the economy. Don't get too involved. It's all passing away. This world is passing away. It's moving very fast toward its end. Jesus could arrive any minute. It might seem like a long time, but remember, end times mass. 2 Peter 3.8 But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 is a text that describes not only the Lord's return, but it also tells us that these words have the power to comfort one another. That's what it says, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then notice this promise. Therefore, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Do you see the incentive in anticipation? It's supposed to be a comfort, a peace that God has promised his church. Lord, let us be a church that is eagerly expecting your return and let us comfort one another with these words. We're commanded. Amen? Turn to James. James chapter 5. Have the same idea here again. James is um, writing to um, persecuted believers who are going through some very difficult situations. He says to them um, first in verse 8, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And, and did the Lord come in their lifetime? No, as it turned out, no, he didn't. They nevertheless lived with that expectancy. And then again, he says in verse 8, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. There's that same idea. Near, soon, imminent, at hand. You should always be, um, you should always be on the heart of the true believer. Jesus is coming. He could be coming at any moment. I skipped the book of Hebrews. So <laughs> go to... Hebrews chapter 10, I do want to read this verse, it's important. Hebrews 10, 25. Hebrews 10, 25. This, of course, was uh, one of the verses that we, we grounded our decision to um, keep our church open during the whole COVID thing. Um, we're commanded um, not to forsake the assembly of God. People can always not come. But who are we to make the decision to close the church so then nobody can come, much like what happened through much of our nation and around the world? But here it is, Hebrews 10, verse 25. 
that we are not to forsake our own assembling together. That means what we're doing right now, the corporate gathering, the bride of Christ, we're not to forsake this, we're to be faithful, assembling together, as is the habit of some. Now, there are no stickers for showing up for church, right? <laughs> but, but, but we are commanded, beloved, not to forsake the assembly together, as is the habit of some. And they were consistently not gathering, but rather, we are to encourage one another all the more when, as you see, the day drawing near. All the more. So, so as God's clock continues to tick down to his return, we need to be gathering more, not less, in order to encourage one another as you see the day drawing near in the last days. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. There's two passages there I'd like to show you. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 1, and did you know that the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing if you read it? That's right. So next time you're saying, man, I just, I, I need a blessing, read the book of Revelation. <laughs> Notice what it says, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who what? Who reads. Those who hear. So when I preach through this, I encourage us, this is you, the body those who read and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed these sayings, which are written in it. Why, John? For the time is what? Near. So, so we see, once again, all the New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, were always living in that light that Jesus could come at any moment. Prepare. Be expecting the Lord. It's coming. It's near. And then do you remember how the book of Revelation ends? Turn there to Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Final chapter of the, the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks his final words in all of scripture here in verse 20. And what are the Lord's final words of instruction that he decides to give to the church, you ask? He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And what is the Apostle John's response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so John also lived with anticipation, you think, of his Lord returning quickly. And he was ready for him. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now, the question will be asked, yeah, but when did the last days then actually begin? And let me show you that in Scripture. If you go to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to kind of look at two, um, two different books and build this out because this is worth knowing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard, the Antichrist is coming even now. Many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. So, the last hour had begun already when John wrote 1 John. The last hour, listen carefully, began with the first coming of Jesus Christ. 
the first coming of Jesus Christ. His arrival ushered in the last days. You say, in what sense? Well, let me unpack this a little bit. The Jews who are living during the time of um, Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, witnessed the whole end of an era. They saw the end of the Old Covenant and the inauguration of the New Covenant. As we were just talking about during the Lord's Supper, the entire Old Testament system of ceremonies and rituals and sacrifices and temples and priests and offerings all collapsed beginning at the cross. And then when the, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom, as God opened it up, if you will, the, the Holy of Holies to everybody. And then in 70 AD, God punctuated that transition by executing judgment by way of the Romans as they destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and wiped out to this very day the entire sacrificial ceremonial system. It happened in their lifetime, okay? So when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, what he had finished was the inauguration of the new covenant. In Matthew 24, Jesus is leaving the temple, and as he's walking away, the, the disciples point out how beautiful the temple was, and it really was something to see. You can imagine the, the, um, the temple when the sun was coming against it and all the, the gold and the smooth, perfectly fit, massive stones that built this incredible temple. Uh, and, and Jesus said, you see, all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, why did Jesus say that? Because Jesus was pronouncing judgment upon apostate Israel. Jesus condemned Israel. If you were with us through John, we saw that almost every single week. They were children of Satan. They were children of the devil. And the temple symbolized the entire Old Testament economy. The, the, the old order was ending and the new order had begun. The order of Messiah. The order of the last days. Hebrews 9 breaks it down a little further for us. Hebrews 9 verse 26 talks about it this way. He, speaking of Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a tremendous statement. Jesus came, he, he came to put away sin, sacrificing himself, appearing once for all at the end of of the ages, verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those, notice, who are eagerly waiting for him. Did you get that? First time he came, he put away sin. Second time he comes, he doesn't come to put away sin anymore. He comes to save those who are already saved, but are here eagerly awaiting his return. 
And beloved, I believe this looks forward to the millennial kingdom. I personally interpret Revelation chapter 20 literally. I believe though the Lord is ruling and reigning right now, he will also one day physically sit on the throne of David over his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And then on and forevermore, because as Isaiah 9, 7 says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. But to answer our question, yes, the last days began, Hebrews 9, 26 says, as he appeared once for all at the end of the ages when he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The once and for all sacrifice. There's no more sacrificial system, no need for the temple, no need for priests. That was the old in with the new. The Messiah has come. So we can say with confidence then that the last days began the first time Messiah came. And so now, here we are, 2,000 years later, living in the last hours of the last days. We're on day three. We're on day three. So I want to close today by sharing a couple final verses with you that will give you insight into how we are to live in light of this. All right, some, some actual application here because the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent. We've seen it throughout the entire New Testament could happen at any moment should lead us to a right kind of attitude an attitude that's not only expectant of his return but that when he returns we are found living and glorifying him so um let me show this turn to second corinthians chapter five. Second corinthians chapter five verse nine paul uh writing to the church these are believers in christ says there in verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Amen? That should be circled. <laughs> For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The Apostle Paul says, look, I live in the light of the fact that someday I'm going to have to stand before Jesus Christ. All right? And all my works will be made visible to me in his presence, whether my works were good or useless. It's important to note, this is the um, judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment seat you find in Revelation. At the judgment seat of Christ, he will not open the books up with all of your sin. He's already dealt with that at the cross. But we will be judged whether or not my life was effective, dedicated, devoted, serviceable, useful, fruitful for the kingdom of God and for his glory. And since we make it our aim, verse 9 says, to please Christ... We should live in such a way that someday when we all stand before him, I pray that our hearts are, are crying out to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will sit you over much, enter into the joy of your master. That's what I want to hear. That we were faithful with what the Lord provided. We want to live for his glory. I hope you consider that every day with every opportunity that God gives you.
It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. That's our aim, right? To be like Christ. To remember what Paul said in um, Philippians chapter 3. He said, I've suffered the loss of all things. I've counted them all as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Then later he adds that I may know him. What was Paul yearning for? To, to be as Christ. To live as Christ. To gain Christ. To know Christ. Now notice, 1 John 3, 3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies, look at this, himself, just as he, Christ, is pure. So, understanding on this side of glory, we're never going to be as pure as Christ. We can still, as Paul and John did, fix all of our hope in Christ, pursue Christ, long for Christ, serve Christ, abide in Christ, follow Christ's statutes. And there's a purifying work through the Holy Spirit of God as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. I love what 1 John 2.28 says, now, little children, abide in him. Abide. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Isn't that precious? We want to live in, in such a way that we face Christ with a, a, a joyful, confident heart. Not like unbelievers who are carrying this immense weight of their sin and all that shame. They're not going to want to go anywhere near the King of Kings draped in that filth. And if we really look for his appearing, as Paul wrote to Timothy, if we love his appearing... That's what he says. Then we will seek to be pure so that our lives are right should he arrive in the very next moment. I don't want my Lord to find me disappointing him. That's the last thing I want to do. And again, grace upon grace. Okay, but this is a calling of abiding in Christ, wanting to be a servant of the Lord. And let's close with this final. Luke chapter 12, um, great verses. Our Lord, uh, all through chapter 12 of Luke, all this incredible teaching, Luke 12, 35. And the word from our Lord is, should, should sound loud. He says in verse 35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit 
Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. This is incredible. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. That's your Lord serving you. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not allow his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. One of my favorite sections of Scripture. This is a warning, number one, to, to the unregenerate world. This is a, a warning, number two, to f false religionists. But I believe this also speaks directly to those of us who are believers in Christ. That we must also be ready for we don't know the moment when the Lord will return. The end of all things is very, very near. Nearer than it's ever been before. We know that for sure. And that, beloved, is certainly an incentive to first have peace with God. Right? we got to have peace with God. And that's a gift from God. And then, if you do have peace with God, that we are living a life that is both holy and that is eagerly anticipating the return of our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the lesson that I have for you today. I, I hope that it has um, convicted you some and, and um, edified you in, in the ways that it needed to as well. Um, if you need prayers this morning, or um, you're welcome to come forward or, or stay after service, we'd love to uh, pray with you or meet with you or answer any questions that you might have concerning the beautiful gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, pray this blessed your heart. Please stand as we praise the rock of our salvation, the cornerstone. <laughs>